Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I've got my rum. It is 10.15 in the morning. We are talking Titans football today. Um, wow, God, that the smell of rum at 10.15 is way different <laughs> than at 10 it's at night. It's a, a little bit different, does it? <laughs> that just like wafted into my face, just like a wall of... It's the sugary pi- banana goodness. It's yeah. the pirate life for you. Oh, jeez. Why did we start recording this early? What are we doing? Uh, well, we're, we're banging out episodes <laughs> is what we're doing, but uh, the rum thing, I guess, is optional, but I don't know. I think it, I'm good with it. Well, I, I need rum to talk about the Tennessee Titans uh, because as a long-suffering Texans fan, even I have to admit that this is one of the most stable, one of the most well-run organizations in the entire league. They are... Not just a playoff contender, a Super Bowl contender pretty much every single year at this point. The one question that we're going to dig into today as we kind of go through all of the offseason moves that they've done is can they still be that this year with some of the losses and some of the gains? Um, it's, It's not exactly an easy path this year looking at the rest of the AFC South. There's some other teams in the division that could legitimately give them trouble. So uh, it's it's a pretty loaded episode, but it's a fun team to talk about, a very intriguing team to talk about, and I uh, can't wait to dive into it. But before we do, EJ, how you doing? I'm good considering it's, you know, single-digit AM and we're recording a podcast, which is not <laughs> the regular bootleg you're, you're used to seeing, but that's all right. We're happy to do it because, again, Titans uh, power team, not only in their own division, but in the NFL, have had a lot of success Mike Vrabel, John Robinson have brought that program to prominence. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about both of them today. And because it's morning time, I still have coffee because I've not had enough of that yet. Um, so we'll be we'll be upping that content throughout this content. And uh, hopefully they balance out somewhere around the middle of the coffee content, the football <laughs> content. By the way, the the rum, I don't know if you've, if you've had this one. I know you're even more of a rum aficionado than me. You ever had Mount Gay from Barbados? No. Oh my God, it's really, really good. It's like a small batch rum. Ooh, it looks it's got good. A lot of barrel spice to it, a lot of banana to it. Super, super uh, tropical. I guess yeah. is the best way to put it. But makes a hell of a mai tai. Uh, I made. Uh, I was working on a, a dolphins video, and so I decided that I wanted to make a. Um, uh, what do you call it? 
a mojito with a dark rum. Nice. It annihilated me. I, I made it through about two, and I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should stop recording now. Maybe maybe let's not use the uh, the higher proof rum for mojitos <laughs> that you could barely taste the alcohol. It's probably not a good idea. But yeah. uh, we're back. We're back. We rallied today. We're doing okay. But uh, first things first, as with all team recap episodes, we're doing a, a little 2021 recap, set the stage for everything that's happened since January slash February. Uh, looking back at Tennessee last season, 12-5 uh, and five record, first in the division. They were improbably tough to beat throughout the regular season. And I say improbably because, again, they sustained some pretty key injuries and they just wouldn't die. Derrick Henry went down early, didn't come back till really late. Um, they still went seven and two at home. They had some really key victories, like you remember, um, you know, completely handling the eventual Super Bowl champion Rams in prime time, just giving Matt Stafford absolute hell. Uh, but a huge, huge seven and two uh, home record, five and three on the road, which is also not easy. They finished the season really hot, at least in the regular season, four and one with a three game win streak. Like, this was a team that just, no matter what happened to them, no matter all the injuries they sustained, they wouldn't go down. And I think that's uh, that's pretty reflective of, you know, the organization that they built since Mike Rabel got there, which is really, no matter what their roster looks like, they're going to give you a game no matter what. And we saw them live last year. We saw them in week two playing the Seahawks. They went, again, representatively, they went down big in the first half. Russell Wilson moon balls to lock it. Stadium was absolutely rocking. They came out in the second half, went to work, pushed to overtime, won the game on the road, rode off into the sunset, much to the Seahawks fans' chagrin. It was very sort of representative of the, nope, we're not going to panic. We're, you know, pro football team. We've been here before. We're just going to keep grinding. We're going to get really, really physical, which also reflects their coach. And, we're going to we're going to take a tough road win in week 2 um in a really tough place to play and put that in our pocket and stack it in our total so i'd say it, yeah it's not a it's not fluky with the titans that's what you expect when you come to play them and again that is the character that they've sort of imbued this team with what's interesting is not just in that seattle game but in a lot of games that they get down they run their way yes. back into it you know a lot of teams panic and they start throwing the ball like crazy no they double down on the run when they're behind because that's just that's generally going to be their safest option with Derrick Henry where they're like, okay, we need to slow the game down, control the clock, keep the other offense off the field, get Derrick going by carry number 17 to 18. He's going to start ripping ones off. And that's exactly what happened in that Seattle game where I think it was like fourth quarter and they were down by four or five at that point. They clawed their way back into it. They they got one run from Derek for like 70 yards and a touchdown, I think on a toss play, if I recall correctly, might have been outside zone. And it was one of those where we just looked at each other and we were like, what can you do? What can you do? It's three and a half yards of carry until all of a sudden it's six yards of carry, you know, and yep. it's it's almost inevitable. And, and that's why he's he's one of the most unique players in the league because he gives them a very unique way to win, which is running your way back from a deficit. Yeah. They just beat people. Mm -hmm. You know, they literally line them up and go, okay, we're going to pound you. Like we're going to physically come after you. And we were just like, man, feels like they should turn it up. Feels like they should cut a couple loose to those receivers. Like let's go. And nope, 
just pound, pound, pound. And we kind of looked at each other and went, oh, it's working. Okay. okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, late third, early fourth, mid fourth comes the big run. Just and you, you know, that's why I pointed at pointed at the watch. Right here it comes right on time. Train comes, train comes right on time. And here comes the train for you. And it came for Seattle. They rolled into OT. Did the same thing. Didn't really deviate. It wasn't all of a sudden a huge bomb. They had a couple, couple decent passes in that fourth quarter and and won an OT. But they they just ran them over. Well, so in terms of the men that built that program. You know, the, the people that designed the roster and the mentality that way. Uh, this is also one of been one of been one also have been one of the I only had one sip so far, I promise. Um, <laughs> has been one of the most stable organizations at the top in that you have, you know, John Robinson's been the GM for six years now. So he's uh he's been around the block more than once. Mike Vrabel is in his fifth year at head coach, and I remember when he was first hired. Um, you know, he, he was good as a position coach Mm. with Houston, not necessarily great as a coordinator. And so you and I both kind of had our doubts when he went there and got the head job in Tennessee, but he's a better head coach than he is a coordinator, which some guys are just like that. He's one of them. Great locker room leader, great culture builder, very aggressive, um, in terms of making like macro decisions and game management. He's been fantastic for them. Uh, at the coordinator level, you got Todd Downing, second year at OC, fourth with the team. Shane Bowen, second year DC, fifth with the team. So he's been there ever since Vrabel got there. And then uh, Craig Ackerman, fifth year as their special teams coach, sixth with the team. He's been there since John Robinson got the job. Um, again, very, very stable. All these coordinators have been there for at least four years. So there, there's not really any new installs needing to be done this summer. It's basically just show up tweak, refine, teach the new kids, and let's go. Um, looking at the notable coaches, this is your favorite part because uh, you tend to find some some pretty interesting historical correlations. Yeah, there's fun to dig through here because you find names, both folks that played in the league and coaches that have been all over the league and have been there for a long time in some cases. last uh, I think the last episode we recorded, we had a coach that had been in the league 44 years, which is just staggering in any profession, but in the NFL especially. So on the offensive side, we got Rob Moore. And if that name sounds familiar, yes, he coaches wide receivers for the Titans, and he's a former Jets wide receiver. Many Jets fans will remember Rod Moore. Uh, and Tennessee, interestingly, is we talked about that mentality, that rushing attack, and they have three coaches on the roster that work with the offensive line, and they don't have any other title. It is offensive line, which is the head offensive line coach, uh, assistant, and like senior assistant. And none of them are assistant head coaches or run game coordinators or anything else. It's three guys that work with the offensive line. And I can't think of another team in the National Football League that has three dedicated OL coaches. But you can tell based on that structure where they put their resources, who they want to be, what they want to do, what they want to be good at. And and that's the Titans. On defense, some familiar names. Uh, Jim Schwartz is their senior defensive assistant, uh, but he's also the you know former head coach of the Lions, former defensive coordinator for the Titans, the Bills, and the Eagles. Most folks will know him from his Eagles tenure uh, and then moving on to the Lions head coaching position, uh, defensive mastermind of a lot of those Eagles teams and a lot of the pressure. And uh, Vrabel 
you know, has given him the title of senior defensive assistant, definitely trusts his eye in that area. Brable himself being a defender um, says, yep, Schwartz runs it the way I want it to. Interestingly, he has the, the history from way back. Started out with the Titans, um, and that was his first coordinator role in the NFL as a defensive head, or defensive coordinator. So, uh, in tons of experience to have a former head coach and three-time DC being your assistant. He's not even your defensive coordinator. Um, that's a lot to lean on uh, for Vrabel. So uh, interesting names, just like every coaching roster throughout the NFL. You, you go digging and you find um, family connections, you find position connections, historical connections, and then just uh, loads of experience tucked in. And Jim Schwartz, he's uh, seems like just yesterday he was getting in fights with Jim Harbaugh on the field. I don't know if you remember that when he was in Detroit and Harbaugh was in San Francisco. I do. The the the, the back pat of doom. Yes, that's <laughs> oh, nice, God, kid. And now he's like one of the elder statesmen, you know, defensive coaches in the league because he's been around for God knows how many years. And you know, back then he was one of the you know the the next hot young head coach and now he's he's like uh he's like wade phillips you know he's like just the traveling guru that goes from team to team and and kind of imparts knowledge nice to see that transition work out for him the spirit of performance is what defines acura and now it's electric introducing the zdx acura's most powerful suv yet crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple imsa championships the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Um, free agency losses. Now, these, these can be unrestricted free agents. These can be, uh, you know, RFAs. This can be any combination of just assets that they lost for a variety of methods. Notable names, because it is a very large chart of, of losses here. This is one of the teams that tends to um, churn, I guess, is the is the proper terminology for it. I mean, they churn bodies like almost nobody else in the league. The most notable names on this list, Julio Jones, uh, Janoris Jenkins, no longer there. Michael Pruitt, the tight end, no longer there. Roger Saffold, longtime guard for them. He's now in Buffalo. Uh, David Questenberry, also now in Buffalo, uh, the other right guard. A.J. Brown in a big trade to the Eagles. He's now one of the highest paid receivers in the league and uh, was getting into it a little bit with Titans fans on Twitter this past week, uh, saying he was the, the best receiver in franchise history. I think there's, uh, there's, a, there's a fellow named Derek Mason that might have a little bit of, mm. uh, little bit of a problem with that statement, but hey, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Anthony Ferkser, Mr. Third Down, is now in Atlanta. So a lot of big-name losses there. And that's before we even get to, you know, uh, like Rashawn Evans, you know, former first-round pick for them, ended up not really uh, not really working out like we hoped for. He's also now in Atlanta. Deontay Foreman is in Carolina. There, there's a lot of names that one way or another were contributors for this team that are not there anymore. Which ones to you stick out the most the big names at the top julio and janoris in terms of their contribution um julio's contribution not as great as a lot of titans fans would have hoped uh or expected when he got there to be really the complimentary piece to aj brown losing both of them is the notable piece 
It's the same thing with the tight ends. People might look and say, well, Michael Pruitt, uh, you know, he only played 40% of the snaps and wasn't super productive. He was productive. Ferkser, same thing. You know, he played 33% of the snaps. But when you sort of fuse those two tight ends together and say, okay, that's, you know, 70 plus percent of your tight end snaps and they both had a role and they're both gone, now you have a hole, right? Can you fill it with one player? Maybe, maybe not, but the Titans love their dual and even triple tight end setups. So each loss sort of adds up and that's a notable subtraction from that room. Same thing with interior offensive line. Um, Saffold, 72% of the snaps. Kessenbury, on the other hand, basically an Iron Man, 99.9% of the snaps, which probably means he came out for smelling salts once. Um, <laughs> but again, you add those two guys up in a culture that really prides itself on offensive line play. And those are significant changes. I'm not going to say losses because we'll see what they did to offset that. Um, but overall, a lot of movement. And this is not uncommon in the modern NFL. You have to pick the players you're going to pay a ton of money to. Typically, that's going to be your quarterback, your edge rushers, maybe your cornerbacks, and then, you know, pick another couple positions, Derrick Henry, notably on this team, that you're going to throw the bag at. And everybody else is expendable or movable. And, you know, even if they, like Kessenberry, played a ton of downs for you, you're going to find a way to replace them at a lower cost because that's how teams manage the modern salary cap. That's just the way it goes. Yeah, because Quesenberry had over a 1,000 snaps last year, uh, played a lot of tackle for them. Uh, Saffold, 900 snaps, played a lot of guards. So you're talking about replacing two starters on the offensive line. And, you know, Taylor Lewan, um, you know, has had some durability issues. Theoretically, if he stays healthy, he's locking down left tackle. Uh, But the rest of the line, the only one that I have a whole lot of confidence with, like right now today, is Ben Jones at center. We hope that Dylan Reddins can be, you know, what we thought he was going to be a couple of years ago as a second-round pick. Again, highly athletic kid. Needed some time to kind of fill out and get stronger, but we, we hope that he can, you know, work out at right tackle for them. Um, you know, Nate Davis, Aaron Brewer, like we, we hope that that can be solidifying on the interior three with Ben Jones, but there's there's a lot of question marks there. I'm not saying it's it's bad question marks. It's more so just like, I, I don't know what their starting five is going to perform like next year. And so I think for a team that prides itself on being able to run the football, the offensive line is kind of the most important thing here because you, you really have to be able to to kind of impose your will. It, like Derrick Henry just can't do everything. You got to give him at least a little bit of a crease to work through. So again, it's, it's, more, of a, it's more of a question, not a concern of just who is the starting five going to be because right now the only ones that I think we know for sure, at least at the inside track, are the two tackles in the center. Who's going to be the starting five? And then how well, or rather how quickly, do they gel? Um, now, in terms of uh, free agency gains, and this could be you know a combination of guys getting re-signed or you know, additions from third-party teams, they did bring back Zach Cunningham. You know, in terms of in between the numbers, he's a tackle machine. Uh, ben Jones, as I mentioned, they did re-sign him, solidifying force at center. Uh, Jeff Swaim, uh, their main veteran tight end presence, they did bring him back, but he, pr- I-, I would bet that he's not the number one for them. Um, Harold Landry was a 
big, big retention for them. He's always been kind of a pressure monster the last couple of years, and that was a that was a huge, huge get. To only get him for seventeen and a half million a year, by the way, which in the current edge market is pretty good. But there was one that I know you definitely want to talk about. And that's uh, Nick Westbrook Akini. Why to you is that Loki their best retention? I don't know about best, but it is one we need to talk about because a lot of casual fans around the NFL upon hearing Nick's name will say, who, you know, <laughs> is he a, is he a backup cornerback for Cincinnati? I don't know. Who is that? If you're a Tennessee fan, you definitely know who he is because he was your number two wide receiver last year. Now that wasn't necessarily the plan, but he stepped up. Now he more has wide receiver three numbers, but he was second in catches second in yards, second in yards per catch, and second in touchdowns. He was solidly wide receiver two in Tennessee. And you can argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because his production wasn't incredible. But the bottom line is this guy stepped up in a spot where the other receiver wasn't playing great and gave them that role. So it's a key retention for them. Hopefully he's wide receiver three for them. That would be ideal in terms of his skill set. But he was a contributor. He's a guy that knows culture. Uh, He's a guy that most sort of casual NFL fans don't know the name of. I feel like we have to say his name. Absolutely. He earned it and, you know, played very well in spots where he was given the opportunity. So wanted to highlight him. It's interesting in terms of the re-sign. You can see what the Titans did. Titans said, yep, we prioritize our line. Which one? <laughs> and it was Ben Jones. He played 97.9% of their snaps. So they had a lot of stability in those sort of interior, at least two spots, if not three. And they said, which one do we want to keep? And they said, we want to keep our center. <laughs> We're going to let the guard that played just as many snaps go. We're not letting Ben Jones out of the building. He runs the offensive line. He calls the signals. We're very comfortable, obviously, with his level of play. We're going to pay him pretty decent money to stay here and run that line in front of Derrick Henry. Organizationally, we think that's important, and that's where our priority goes. Yeah, and I think, you know, Ben Jones, again, former Texan, so I've watched him since he entered the league. He is kind of like a perfect system fit for what they want to do, which is build a run game that emphasizes Derrick Henry's skill set. So it's a lot of wide zone. He's gotten better at inside zone over the years in terms of kind of being able to not lose a lot of steam when he makes that kind of early cut um you know they'll do a lot of crack toss and ben jones being not the biggest center in the world but is a little bit on the quicker side really good at those reach blocks really good at kind of locating and locking onto linebackers in space he's kind of the the straw that stirs the drink for derrick henry henry's the straw that stirs the drink for the offense as a whole but you know in a in this style of run game you need a center that can execute you know a scoop block really really well which is like the double team that works up to the mic or somebody who can reach you know a nose tackle solo like that's what ben jones can do so i think you know looking at the the prioritization between say saffold at guard or ben jones ben jones is the more important player um also he has a lot of experience uh you know working with nate davis who was a starting guard for them last year too so kind of kind of maintaining that center guard relationship especially when they love to run to that side with Henry Moore is probably one of the most important things you can do for your most important player which is Derrick Henry now in terms of uh, free agency additions from other teams uh, Austin Hooper 
And we mentioned the tight ends they lost. Austin Hooper, they're bringing in to presumably just kind of be both of those guys in one as your TE1. And then Robert Woods, who's unfortunately coming off injury, uh, you know, you're bringing him in to hopefully by platoon replace what you lost in A.J. Brown. Robert Woods at this point in his career is not A.J. Brown, but I think a healthy Robert Woods is still a very, 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 very good football player. And so if you can kind of like combine Robert Woods with a couple of the rookies they picked up to replace that production and then some, I think that's still a pretty smart signing, especially since considering the current wide receiver market, he's quote unquote only making $16.2 million. Presuming he's healthy, that is a fantastic value for them. It figures into the equation. For sure, in terms of, again, organizational priority, offensive philosophy. And we love Robert Woods, and he is a tremendous culture fit for Vrabel and what he wants to do. He is a team guy. He will do whatever. He is not. He's the farthest thing from a prima donna as wide receivers go. He will block. He will play in the slot. He will play outside. He will do whatever. He's already running and cutting, which to me is staggering, like... I, I wish my body healed like that anymore. Um, so I think the arrow's that pointing deer up. deer antler spray, right? Yeah, I guess, <laughs> right? The clean, the clear, I'm not sure which. But he's back on the field. He's cutting um, in camp, catching balls, going through football drills with a helmet on at this point. That seems ahead of schedule to me. Um, tremendous football player when healthy. We have sung his praises for the last couple of years on bootleg uh, as a Ram. I think underrated in terms of his impact. Again, the Rams did the exact same thing and said, who are we going to prioritize? Um, let Robert Woods go combination of probably age and injury. And in fact, they were going to use that money and pay somebody else because of the wide receiver market you mentioned. Um, but Woods, I think has a chance to be a leader there. Is he going to be AJ Brown on the field? No, I don't think anyone expects that. Can he be very productive as a part of a combination they're trying to put together as a receiving core. Yes, he can. And Hooper's really interesting too. And a value, right? You look at what his old teammate just got paid, David Njoku, and then Hooper's making 6 million bucks. And Hooper has the capacity to be pretty good two-way tight end and take up, again, some of both of those roles that they lost, maybe in one player, and for only 6 million bucks, that's a value. So Titans kind of went to the, I don't want to say bargain bin, but the second tier shelf, not the top shelf, got very good players that they think will fit in their system and can replace some of the losses. Yeah, and, and Hooper, he does everything Ferkser does, but he also does everything Michael Pruitt does. And I think I have to check the exact salary for what the other ones got, but... Uh, Ferkser's at 1.187, Pruitt's at 990. So it's a difference of like 4 million for a combo player that kind of does everything. He kind of embodies both of those skill sets in one for only an extra 4 million, which means that you can a little bit more confidently run, you know, like a combination, say, of. Chigakonkwo and Austin Hooper. Um, you know, you can run a, a combination of, um, you know, Jeff Swaim, Chig, and Hooper all together in 13 personnel. I just think that that's, uh, that is a deal that is not talked about enough because they're, they're really barely spending above 
the guys that they lost, and they got a better player. Uh We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, now, I did mention <laughs> Chickaconquo, which kind of is a good segue into the draft because he is a name that we're going to be talking about quite frequently, not just today, but I think for, <laughs> for really all of the 2022 season. Looking at the Titans draft as a whole, beyond just a conquo, I think they nailed it. Like, completely nailed it. There were a couple picks that obviously were more in the boomer bust realm, but considering where they are as a franchise, they're already good. Like, the, the, the baseline is already there. They're already a playoff team. They're already contenders. They need some of those booms to hit to put them over the edge. And so I think them kind of taking, you know, the gambles on, say, Traylon Burks at pick 18. He was not the most, like, refined, out-of-the-box receiver in this class. But when he's healthy and when he's at proper playing weight, he's one of the most athletic, if not the most athletic in this class. So, again, the, the potential boom there is insane. Um, Roger McCreary is arguably the stickiest man corner in this class and that's saying something because there were some really good ones at the top and Roger McCreary just won't go away you put him in man-to-man coverage on anybody in the SEC and he wouldn't go away uh Nicholas Petit Frere that one that one I wasn't super high on I had a much lower grade on him than most other people but I also recognized that there were a lot of people in the draft community that thought he was a top five tackle in this class because of his athletic skill set so again we're talking about booms or busts here um Malik Willis ultimate boomer bust at quarterback but I think you and I both acknowledge that getting him in the third for that kind of potential is incredible Hassan Haskins at running back again they fits that pound you you know with big back mentality that they love and then we get Chigakonkwo one of the one of the most athletic tight ends in this class again huge huge potential Kyle Phillips a favorite of both yours and mine that we saw live down at the Shrine Bowl completely uncoverable uh, whether we're talking about the one-on-one drills or team period, literally nobody could cover him. He's going to be an elusive slot receiver from day one. Theo Jackson, the safety out of Tennessee, probably a special teamer. And Chance Campbell, the linebacker out of Ole Miss, also probably a special teamer. But looking at this draft class, I loved it because they took swings. They took big swing after big swing after big swing. And it might not work out, but if it does, good Lord, this class is going to be insane. I love the fit. You talked about how this organization is stable at the top. And when I say fit, I don't necessarily mean fit of player within system, which I liked as well. I like the fit of the draft class in the organizational build. And that is, what do we want to do up top? How do we want to do it? How does our existing roster work into that? Who do we want to keep? The sort of Ben Jones decision. Who do we want to let go? 
okay, these receivers, who do we want to bring in in free agency? That's another layer. Okay, we're going to get Woods over here to get part of that production. We're going to get Hooper over here. And then the draft slots right in underneath that. And how are we going to flesh that out even further? How are we going to add more skills or different skills to our tight end room? Oh, we're going to get Chigakonko. He's completely different than a couple of guys we got, but we really like what he brings we're going to get kyle phillips and him and westbrook akini are going to be our inside guys and you know woods and Traylon burks are going to be our outside guys so we got half draft and half existing and they're building this entire team layer on layer and each layer agrees with doesn't fight with the other layers and that was my favorite thing about this draft it's not that each one of these players was my favorite at that particular position it's how does it fit within their organization and they're thinking about it in a three-dimensional way putting that box together it's not just oh well he's the best guy on the board so i guess we take him no he's got to fit culture he's got to fit oh what else do we have in the room is it different skill is it more skill is it replaceable all those things come into play with this draft class and you know you like me i look at nicholas petit frere and i necessarily wouldn't have picked him out of the tackles that were available at that spot i give the titans a pass why they have three ol coaches dedicated they know what they like in terms of uh traits in terms of mindset in terms of makeup i'm gonna give them a free pass and see what turns out like on the field because even some of their free agent signings from previous years i've been like eh man it's a lot of money goes to tennessee tears it up and i'm like okay all right i don't know as much about it as they do so i'm gonna (laughs) give them a pass Malik Willis is the ultimate swing, is the ultimate wild card. Great landing spot for him because he doesn't have to start. He doesn't have to be the guy. And most of the places that people talked about him ending up, he was going to have to do that. He was going to have to do it for a bad team. And that was a mix that really worried both you and I because he has a lot of potential. He also has a long way to go, a lot of things to refine in his game. Landing in a spot like that where he had to be the guy and he had to produce now on a bad team would have been a very toxic spot for him. Instead, he comes to Tennessee. He comes in the third round. There's no first-round weight sitting on top of him. He can sit behind Ryan Tannehill. He can watch a very good organization and how they do it. He can take a year or two, and then if he blossoms the way we think he will because he's extremely smart, he works really hard, and he has great physical gifts, He people are going to look back at that if that occurs and go third rounder are you kidding when they go back to do that three-year redraft they're going to be like "Mm, no later than 15 20 right yeah so great great draft from an organizational and team building standpoint that's my favorite thing about it love chig love kyle and they they're going to fit very prominently quickly in the titans passing game but like chance campbell the last pick such a Vrabel pick, like super athletic linebacker that doesn't necessarily have it all figured out. Vrabel's like, cool, I'm going to turn him into a demon on special teams, <laughs> and then I'm going to work him in once he figures out what he's doing. Uh, because he flashed on tape in terms of athleticism, but there was a lot of... Oh. I, I want to emphasize that doesn't know what he's doing part of the evaluation yet. <laughs> super, super athletic. not necessarily the targeting system needs an upgrade in terms of playing linebacker but on special teams you're like dude you're big you're strong you're real fast for your size go get him right yeah and he's got that in his game he that can be his ticket onto at least the practice squad if not the 53 and again you're getting that in the sixth round like those are uh, those are intentional choices 
Have you seen his uh, his spider chart on Mock Draftable? It just looks like a half moon because yes. he's 6'2", 232, which is, that's the, the it's mm-hmm. like 21st percentile weight. But 154, 10-yard split, 90 percentile, 457, 40, 86 percentile, vertical jump of 40 inches, 94 percentile, broad jump, 127 inches, 92nd percentile. Like, he's a missile. Yeah, he's a missile. And- he's he's a special teams demon out of the box, like you mentioned. But as a linebacker, whoo, <laughs> you never know exactly what direction that speed is going to go. <laughs> yeah, it's the big IF. If he hits his target, look out. It's a highlight. If yeah. he doesn't, he's going to run himself out of the frame pretty quickly. So, But I, I love those choices. And it doesn't stop there with the Titans. It goes to their UDFA class. And, uh, you know, I would put the Titans in the middle. They're not super aggressive in UDFA. Like we talked about the Colts in this division, bringing in like 35, 40 guys. They're they're more targeted than that, but they're also not one of those teams that only brings in four or five guys. So lots of UDFAs to talk about. Also camp invites. We're not going to differentiate between the two. But the ones of note, Reggie Roberson Jr., uh, SMU, the wide receiver, a lot of people were talking about him being draftable, having a you know low grade, draftable grade. Didn't get drafted. Ends up again, sort of come see if you can add anything to our wide receiver room where we had some losses. Can you bring anything? Hayden Howerton. Want to talk about Hayden Howerton a lot. He was at the Shrine Bowl. We got to see him. We got to talk to the folks that were coaching him on that team. We were like, what's, what's the deal with Hayden Howerton? And it feels to me like one of those guys that nobody knows the name of he plugs in you know might go to a place like green bay and six or eight years from now when they're re-signing him everybody's going to say where did he come from smu not the most physically gifted interior offensive lineman but feels very much like a guy that is smart tough and knows what it takes to get the job done whether or not it's just with physical gifts probably not going to be with him but still effective when i went back later in the draft process and we're watching other people against smu definitely turned an extra eye towards hayden howard and went yeah you put him with a good offensive (laughs) line coach he's gonna be one of those guys probably as a backup but that can get it done again you're getting that for free haskell garrett the interior defensive lineman from Ohio State had a draftable grade, especially early in the process, sort of, I would say, a higher draftable grade, sort of slid down throughout the process. Not sure why that was. Titans come in, scoop them up, say, yep, uh, we've got a pretty good interior defensive line here. You can probably learn from guys like Jeffrey Simmons. Yeah, we're, we're good with that. Yeah, Jaden Peavy, same thing. We talked about PV as one of those many Texas A&M defenders for the Aggies that sort of caught your eye and, and had specific things that he was really good at. Titans liked some of those specific things, brought him in. And then one of your favorites that I'm going to let you talk about on special teams. Yeah, so Ryan Stonehouse is the true punt god in this class. I, I know I know. people look at you know the Matariza highlights and the oh, 80-yard punt. Uh, yeah, Ryan Stonehouse did the same thing. He had there was a there was a highlight that he had. I think it was like a 80, 83 or eighty five yarder, and it wasn't just like a, oh it took a crazy bounce and kept going. Like the actual distance to first bounce was just as insane as any matter rise of punt. Like it was a legitimate eighty plus yarder. But he also has location that Matariza does not have in his toolbox yet. Arise has got a leg, but Ryan Stonehouse has a leg and location. And there was a punt um, that I posted on Twitter. I'm talking, it was from his own 23, if I recall correctly. And this sucker bounced at the one yard line. 
and took a backspin and settled inside the five. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like th- this dude's in college with that kind of leg and location where you can get like a, a net of what is it, like a net of 60 <laughs> or whatever, whatever the yardage was. And you're back in like, you are well within your own territory and you're backing the other team up to their, their own five yard line. And he's capable of doing that. And he was all conference punter three straight years until Matt Ariza got a whole bunch of publicity, deservedly so, in his last year and took it from him in his last year. But he was the guy, not just in that conference, but in college football for years leading up to 2021. And so he is the true punt god, not just in the Mountain West, but in the entire, you know, NCAA. He is the true punt god. And for him to go UDFA for the Titans, like that is a massive get for them. He is a weapon. He's got power. He's got location. He's got consistency. We're talking about breaking the record in college for average net. Mm-hmm. He's incredible. He's an amazing punter, and uh, he should have been drafted. No doubt in my mind. I agree. Absolutely worth the draft pick. Um, great punter. You're talking to a Jordan Stout guy, though, so I don't know about best punter in the uh, draft. But there's a we, lot of Jordan Stout guys. I get I know. it. I get we it. Can, we can have that argument, but the more we talk about punters, the more we're going to have to talk about punters. So that's the caution. People are going to think we're a special teams <laughs> podcast all of a sudden, and we're not. But we love Ryan Stonehouse. We got to see him up close and personal at the Shrine Bowl. Definitely should have been drafted. And again, if you're going to replace a punter, if you need to replace a punter, you know, UDFA is the way to do it. Uh, if you can, again, if he's not drafted, take advantage of the system, game theory, get yourself an asset that you don't have to quote unquote pay for in draft capital. Titans do it here with Ryan Stonehouse. Team floor, team ceiling. We wrap up every single episode with this with this segment. We're talking about the ceiling of wins versus the floor of wins. For me, their ceiling, I think, is exactly right back where they were last year. 12 wins. 12 and 5, making a serious playoff push. You know, win the AFC South, have a legitimate shot for the first seed, which 12 to 13 wins in the AFC is generally what the first seed is going to be because it's very hard to not lose (laughs) at least four games in the AFC with how loaded it is. I think 12 and five will get you there in 2022. So that is their that is their ceiling right back where they were last year. Top team in the conference. Their floor. When you look at their schedule last year, I mean, they had some nail biters that they that they squeaked out we saw one of them live against mm-hmm. seattle like they were on the ropes and they came back in overtime and put that thing away and kind of stole a win in seattle um they they you could argue they got away with one in in buffalo you know literally mm-hmm. one play goes the other way they lose that game they barely survived the colts in overtime on halloween um, you know, they, they survived, literally survived the Saints, you know, making a late surge in the fourth quarter, barely sque- uh, squeaked out a win there. Um, you know, they only beat the 49ers by three. They, they, they really kind of let the Steelers hang around, and, and, you know, that was a one-score victory. So they did have some great blowouts on their resume. They beat the shit out of Miami. They beat the shit out of the Rams. They absolutely obliterated Kansas City. But for every blowout they had, they had ones where you're like, Man, they got away with one. And so for me, their floor is if a few of those games go the other way and they don't have this kind of divine intervention that that seemed to pop up last year. And that's nine wins. Still a great floor. I mean, that nine is probably the ceiling Mm -hmm. for a lot of teams in the league. But if there's kind of like a regression to the mean and they don't get, you know, 
Josh Allen not converting last minute, if they don't get that one run from Henry against Seattle, if they don't get that one play, I think they win nine games and not 12. And at that point, we're talking, okay, are they making, are they a seven seed? Are they a six seed? Like that's, that's the gap here. Is, are they a seven seed or are they a one seed? I could see both scenarios. Yeah, you and I are in agreement when we look at this team. I'd say their ceiling is the same, 12 wins, but I'm going to add a great big giant asterisk to that and one dominant playoff win. I want to see them kick ass in the playoffs because they have been a great regular season team for the last couple of years, but they need to get back to that form in the regular season, and they're at the point now in Vrabel's tenure where it comes with the and, and they need to go to the playoffs and stomp somebody because they have wilted in the playoffs. They've they've pushed through the regular season, been a very powerful team that people were sort of afraid to play, and then they've just gotten wiped off the board in the playoffs. So I want to see that 12 wins plus a really good playoff win. Floor is the same for me. I might go down to 8. I really think 8-9 is that range. And it's if all the things we're talking about don't happen, right? Derek, Derek Henry doesn't return to form and the mileage does start to catch up if that offensive line doesn't gel the way that they want it to as quickly as they want it to if there's i love you said regression to the mean it reminds me very much of interceptions right one year a guy will have you know eight interceptions and everybody's like that's great and you can just book it the next year it's going to be four or five because the ball it's <laughs> you know it's not a round ball i used to have a football coach who would say that it's not a round ball it bounces funny and you know it could bounce funny for the titans they could not come away with those close games they could have another injury to, to Tannehill, to you know jeffrey simmons to derrick henry like there are things but i do not believe you cannot get me to believe that this team will win less than eight or nine games under mike vrabel he will will it to that level it's a very talented team but he as a leader is going to hold this team together and I, that is their absolute floor for me. If they went far below that, I would be stunned. I would be like, what happened? Um, so same thing. I would say, I'll say 12 and 8 just to, to lower the floor a little bit. But I would be shocked by only eight wins from this team because of the stability, because of the talent, because of the organizational building, and frankly, because of who the head coach is. You know who Mike Rabel reminds me of now that you mention it? Mike Tomlin. Come hell or high water. In a they way, will never be bad. Never they, be bad. They're going to will it to a certain professional level of we will beat the people we are supposed to beat typically, and then we're going to add some wins from there. That's not the that's not the mean. We're not going to go up or down from there. That is when we talk about floor. That is truly our floor. We will not go below that as a professional football team. And you mentioned it earlier, but neither you and I saw that coming because Vrabel was. You know, good as a position coach, not great as a coordinator. And then we thought, oh, did he get promoted too quickly because of the resume, because of the name? And the most interesting thing about Vrabel is that, much like Tomlin, he has added. He is not, people say Belichick tree. Well, actually, when you look at where he coached, not really. He played, obviously, and picked up a ton from the New England Belichick model. But he, as a coach, isn't that way. He is a hybrid of things he is not afraid to take the best things from there and other things and we've seen 
some rigidity from other coaches that have come out of that tree and will go, oh, no, we're going to do everything the way Bill does. And they haven't been terribly successful. And Vrabel has because although he came from there, he is not purely of there. He's continued to learn. He's continued to surround himself with people from other trees. Um, and much like Tomlin, he is now sort of the omni, and that's what makes him a better head coach than a coordinator. Ironically, <laughs> You know where he started. If we're going to attribute Mike Vrabel to a coaching tree, ironically, you know where he started out was under Urban Meyer at Ohio State. Yep. But he is the exact opposite of Urban Meyer in almost every single way. You can also learn what not to do from coaches yes. you have. Yes. <laughs> Vrabel seems to have learned like, those pretty well. Well, if you're a former player and you see how Urban Meyer treats players, I think Vrabel's first instinct would be like, who the fuck is this guy? Who does he think he is talking to these dudes like that? You know? Yeah. So I, he's a great coach. He's a great head coach. Probably one of the, I would struggle to get more than six names deep mm-hmm. in the league before naming Mike Vrabel as like top head coaches. And, um, they just got to get over the hump in the playoffs. That's it. It's like, it's like the new Andy Reed. Yes. You know, just got to get over the hump in the playoffs. Cause he's great. He's so great. Until we get to January. So hopefully uh, hopefully that happens for them eventually because Mike Frabel's a great dude. Um, everybody that knows him and is around him loves him. I really want to see him have that success and kind of cement his legacy as like a top-tier NFL head coach. Um, I also want to see that happen for Ryan Tannehill, another great dude that I think, um, you know, seeing his career resurgence, I want to see him as the clock winds down on his career, you know, have that career highlight. I think he's definitely earned that. There's a lot of journeymen that I think, you know, deserve to have that. Robert Woods, Austin Hooper, um, Zach Cunningham's a great guy, like Ben Jones. There's so many veteran coaches and players in this organization that I really do want to see succeed. I, I know I was kind of being cheeky in the beginning as a Texans fan, but like this this is a locker room full of good good people. And uh hopefully they get over the hump eventually. You know, maybe that's this year, maybe that's next year but hopefully that happens for them but uh that'll wrap it up for our titans review remember tomorrow we have the afc south kind of uh tldr quick recap as a whole coming out every single friday we're putting that out division by division so we're gonna be talking about the afc south as a whole you know predictions for you know mvp of the division offensive defensive player of the year award defensive rookie of the year award uh within the division itself that's all coming tomorrow so uh same time be back here until then Later. Take care.